Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Emma, and today's author interview is a really fun one with Kennedy Ryan. Now, we are here today to talk with Kennedy because five of her books have been picked up for traditional publishing by Bloom Books, an imprint of source books. And so we're talking about specifically the All the King's Men series and the Hoops series, which have gorgeous new additions. Now, bookmark these dates for you. The Kingmaker came out on the new edition May 23rd of this year, and The Rebel King came out on June 27th of this year. The Hoops series, these gorgeous new editions, Longshot will be out August 8th, Blockshot will be out September 19th, and Hookshot will be out October 10th. Put your holds on those titles in Libby if you have not already. Keep an eye out for the gorgeous new editions of all of these books. And I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kennedy Ryan. Now, a little bit about Kennedy. She's a Rita and Audie Award winner and USA Today bestselling author. Kennedy Ryan writes for women from all walks of life, empowering them and placing them firmly at the center of each story and in charge of their own destinies. Her heroes respect, cherish, and lose their minds for the women who capture their hearts. Kennedy and her writings have been featured in Chicken Soup for the Soul, USA Today, Entertainment Weekly, Glamour, Cosmopolitan, Time, O Magazine, and many others. She is a wife to her lifetime lover and a mother to an extraordinary son. Her book that was published in 2022 before I Let Go was recently optioned for development with Universal and Peacock. And in 2019, Kennedy Ryan made history. She was the first Black author to win a Rita Award. So Kennedy is just absolutely fantastic. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Happy listening. Hi, Kennedy. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. So we're so excited to have you today. The reason we're here is to chat about all of the gorgeous new additions that five of your books are getting from Bloom Books, specifically the All the King's Men series and the Hoops series. Yeah, I'm, I'm so excited about it. They All the covers are gorgeous and just really excited for a new wave of readers to find these stories. Absolutely. And so to get our listeners a little bit of a taste of what these books are about, can you tell them first what the All the King's Men series is about? Yeah, um, (laughs) it features an indigenous heroine, uh, which I don't think that we see enough in romance. Um, And when we have in the past, some of the representations been problematic. And so I was very, very careful about the representation there. And, you know, I always start off any discussion about this book, talking about being in conversation, being in discourse, being in research with indigenous women. Um, As I wrote this story, um, that was very, very important to me. So it features a powerful indigenous heroine, which we don't see enough. Um, And uh, she is we meet her 
when she's only 13 years old. And um, she is, uh, her mother is an activist and she comes from a, a line of activists and she becomes a water protector. And then she becomes a protester, you know, when there's a pipeline being laid on protected land. And that's when she, she's a senior in high school. And that's when she first meets, her name is Lennox Moon Hunter. That's when she first meets Maxim Cade, who is a budding environmentalist, uh, but he's also the son of an oil baron, if we're still using words like baron. Yeah. Um, his father's company is actually the oil company that's laying the pipeline on protected grounds, and he wants nothing to do with it. And he just happens to be with his father when his father visits the site. And um, they meet at a protest and they land in jail together because he joins the protest <laughs> against his father. Um, so that's kind of the, that's the setup for how they first meet. Um, they meet again years later um, in Amsterdam and they have a no strings love affair for a week. He is about to go off to Antarctica and she's about to start working on her first political campaign. And they both are just these two people who want to change the world. Um, and it's like, what happens when all of that passion they have to change the world? They also turn on each other, you know, and um, it's a love story that spans four continents and about 20 years. Um, and if, if we talk about it in terms of tropes and vibes, if you love the show Scandal, it's it's a lot kind of like politics, intrigue, um, lots of steam, um, forbidden love, though there's no cheating, because I always get asked that. Um, it's uh, star-crossed lovers, it's soulmates, it's touch her and you'll die. <laughs> it's, you know, boy, boy obsessed, <laughs> you know, all of the tropes that uh, people talk about, but there's a lot of substance in this story. Um, and it was written because I, I wanted to talk about um, Native rights. I wanted to talk about, um, and her best friend Kimba is a beautiful Black woman um, who she and Lennox start a political consulting firm together to advance their causes. And there's a third book called Queen Movement. That's Kimba's story. So I think that's kind of a aerial view of the whole series. Absolutely. And then to pivot a little bit to the Hoops series, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that as well? Yeah, uh, the Hoops series, it starts off with Longshot and it really starts off with a bang. <laughs> Longshot, yes. <laughs> Longshot, I, uh, the same way that before I talk about all the King's men, there are things that I talk about to ease readers into it. Um, before I talk about Longshot, I always tell readers to make sure they check content warnings on this book. It's not one that you want to stumble into blindly. It's the first book of the series and it there's graphic um, depiction of intimate partner violence in this story, not involving the hero. And and um, it is a beautiful young woman named Iris who um, I, you know, people often kind of a roundabout way of talking about this series is three books, uh, three different couples. The first, of course, is August and Iris, which is Longshot that is re-releasing August 8th. The second book is called Blockshot. It's two, it's kind of friends to lovers, enemies to lovers, um, two sports agents featuring a beautiful first generation um, Mexican woman. Um, and the guy that she's been crushing on in college who's secretly also crushing on her. Um, it is also a story 
that spans like 15 years, um, but they both become powerful sports agents. And I love seeing a woman, you know, navigating and ruling um, sports a- the sports agent industry. Um, it's in set in the NBA. Longshot also set in the NBA. Third book is Hookshot, also set in the NBA. Little bit of an age gap, um, of age, age gap <laughs> is what I always say. And of age, age gap. Um, it's a veteran NBA player and um, the cousin from the first book. Uh, her name is Lotus and um, it's called Hookshot. And I just, I love this series. It centers these amazing women of color who are being, who are powerful and also um, navigating difficult things in their lives and coming out on top. Uh, Longshot, like I said, kicks it off with a bang, a graphic depiction of intimate partner violence, but it's a survivor story. Um, it's a story of, you know, the reality of that. Again, one that I wrote in concert um, and in conversation with survivors, with social workers, with, with um, shelter staff to ensure accuracy, authenticity. Um, but it's also a story of healing. And I can't think of anyone who deserves a happily ever after more than survivors. And so that's really, you know, why I wrote this story. And to, to have a real conversation about intimate partner violence and how we talk about it in culture. Yes. Um, but I think it's so important that you show these characters that perhaps do not get enough representation, but then also that all of these characters, all of these people, no matter their circumstances, are worthy of having a romance, a love story fitting for uh, you know all the readers. And so that hopefully they can see themselves in these love stories and know that that is for them as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. These books were originally published over a couple of years, the 2018 and 2019. What is it like to slowly see these books reach a wider audience and find new readers? It's amazing. Um, It's amazing because I think it would be amazing for anyone, you know, any book that you write and you put out into the world and then um, it reaches you know, it has a great run of reaching readers. And then you have an opportunity to reach more readers because of course, um, it wasn't as easily accessible in like Target or Costco or airports and places like that. So to see these stories now, like at the fingertips of readers who may not have known about them before is um, amazing. I think that what's what's most rewarding for me is knowing why I wrote these books. Like knowing that I wrote Longshot um, because I wanted to have a, a cultural discourse about um, intimate partner violence and about patriarchy and about how our systems um, often esteem paternal right over over the safety and well-being of women and children. Like, you know, like the reasons I wrote the books, you know, the conversation I wanted to have about land rights, the conversation I wanted to have about climate change, like those conversations that I wanted to have. For me, that's what's most exciting exciting is that I was having those conversations in a great space. And now we're widening that circle of readers who will not just be swooning and, you know, and, you know, having a good time during a romance, but also maybe thinking about some things that they hadn't considered before or kind of having something. The thing that I really love about Longshot specifically is all the women I get messages from who say, I read Longshot and I I left an abusive relationship or I read Longshot and I hadn't spoken to my mom since I was a kid because I grew up in an abusive home. I called her after I read Longshot, you know, or now I'm volunteering in a shelter because I read Longshot. 
to think of that kind of impact being amplified is what's most exciting to me for all of these books. Yes. And what I really liked about Longshot, or one of the things I enjoyed about Longshot is that there's a conversation that some of the basketball players, wives, girlfriends are sort of having in front of Iris around just leaving situations that are, you know, toxic and dangerous and just how putting a lot of the blame on the woman for staying and things like that, where those sorts of conversations overhearing them from Iris's perspective, you see a lot more into what's at stake, what's involved. And so I really loved the way that that was presented where you could perhaps be so flippant with some of your comments, not fully realizing the impact that those, those thought processes may have on anyone that's actually in that situation. Yeah, that was, and some of that comes from when I, um, I saw there was a situation that went viral, like in real life, where a woman was abused and it was a professional athlete. And I don't say her name or his name because I don't ever want her to stumble on an interview. And all of a sudden she's reliving the, you know, one of the hardest seasons of her life because I'm talking about my book, but there was a situation where, um, it was caught on camera and it went viral. And those were the conversations that we were having in culture was um, she must be a gold digger. You know, why else would she stay? And then there was just a lot of conversation about his team. Were they going to keep him? Was it going to affect his, um, you know, contract, like things like that. Um, but very little about her well-being, very little about what about her safety. And so when I decided that I wanted to write a book that really delved into that, I a lot of the conversations that we're hearing in the books about how people kind of judge those were the things that I was having in my head about Iris, you know, like, why isn't she leaving and saying, you know, the first time a guy hits me, I'm got, I'm out of there. I'm, you know, the things that we say, and I literally had to stop writing the book. I had to close the laptop. And that's when I really started having conversations with survivors, because if I was judging Iris, how was I going to write something that was compassionate and insightful? If I had in, you know, inhaled all of those cultural preconceived notes, Emotions about her, how was I going to depict that story with any kind of authenticity or compassion? So that's when I started having conversations with survivors and you use the word flippant. And I think that's so accurate because in my research, what research shows is that when women leave um, domestic abuse situations, I may be getting the statistic slightly wrong because it's been like four or five years since I wrote the book. Um, but I think it's something by like 70% um, that could be slightly elevated, but it's, it's a huge jump in risk of, of death, you know, by homicide um, from their abuser, when they leave the, the risk of that exponentially increases. And so it takes a lot of planning. Um, It's not a just leave. You have to have a plan. You have to have support. You have, there's so much that needs to be in place, especially when children are involved. Um, And that's what I mean by paternal right is the way our legal system uh, really hampers women in a lot of ways when children are involved. So Yeah. Flippant is a good word (laughs) because I think we often are with someone else's safety. Yeah. And I think there are a lot of things where it's maybe not intentional, but there's certainly a lack of understanding of all of the different things that have to be planned in order to extricate yourself from situations 
And without giving too much of the actual plot away, you quickly see that for Iris, it is absolutely not just packing a bag and walking out the door. Right. And people, (laughs) when Longshot first released, I didn't know how it was going to affect people. You know, I got all these messages saying, you know, my Apple watch is telling me to breathe. You know, it feels too real. It feels like actually happening. And I think one, I think what really infuses that sense of realism is that all the things that are happening are really based on the conversations I had with survivors. And what we really start to do in this story is, yes, it is a love story. And yes, she does eventually get healing and a happily ever after, but it is also me building a case Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, against the systems that that make life even harder for these women. And that's where we see reproductive abuse. That's where we see financial abuse, you know, where and that's where we see, you know, social isolation, like all of the things that come into play to make this a really complex web that women have to escape. Yes. And what I really enjoy about both of these series mm-hmm. is that they are very grounded in that research that you did. They are very much grounded in that experience from individuals that are of that background or have been through those circumstances. And so you talked a little bit about the inspiration for Longshot, but I'm curious to know if there was a similar sort of like piece of news or or something happening in current events that also inspired the Kingmaker and just what that process was like to sort of get all of the research under your belt and and sort of start writing those books. Yeah, um I was watching and it's it's funny because now I don't even remember the name of the documentary, but it was a documentary about the Dakota pipeline, you know, and it was showing it was showing um people protesting, you know, and uh, the pipeline, specifically uh, Native people, Indigenous people protesting. And that just, one of of my highest um, qualities, like in personality, you know, you take the personality test, strengths finders is belief, you know, and so I'm always, I'm very cause driven. I'm very much like, I rally around conviction. I need conviction to write. You know, I always tell people if I was really smart, I would be like, oh, okay, so hockey romance is really big right now. White shoes is really big right now. Okay, I'm going to write a dark white shoes hockey romance, you know, (laughs) I really wish it was like that. I do. But usually for me, it is something that I'm seeing happening in the world. And when I saw that, it really just pricked something in my heart. And I started kind of thinking about these two women because I'm not Native, I'm not Indigenous. I'm black. Um, And so Kimba's story, of course, that's a story that's very familiar to me because she's a black woman who's navigating, um, you know, a world where it's not something that's rooted in like racial trauma, but she's navigating her convictions in this world. Um, And having a partner, her best friend who is indigenous, uh, Lennox is Yavapai Apache, um, having them kind of come together to start this company. But Lennox's story came to me first. And I really had to interrogate if it was even my story to write, you know, and if it was, because as a black woman, um, and it, you know, reading romance, I have seen our stories written by people who weren't from our community. And I've seen misrepresentation. I've seen harmful representation. 
I have seen exploitation. Um, I still see it, <laughs> you know, and I I didn't want to be appropriative. Um, and I wanted to do everything I could to avoid that. And so for me, that started with really interrogating if this is a story that I can tell, um, what is it going to take for me to feel like I am not being exploitative? I'm not being appropriative. It is rooted in something that's authentic and accurate. And for me, that meant a ton of research. It took me um, almost a year to write this story. Um, and a, a lot of that was research. And a lot of the research was, um, there's an author's note <clears throat> in the beginning that talks about the indigenous women who were so gracious to have conversations with me on which, you know, this story is kind of rooted in. Um, and one of the things that the thing, the reason I really like to have conversations with people, my background is journalism. And so I kind of approach every book like a story that I'm writing. And I start with my subjects. You know, I start with the people that I'm going to interview. And um, as I was that that meant interviewing a real cross section of indigenous people, but especially making sure that some who were specifically from Lennox's tribe, you know, Yavapai Apache were a part of those conversations. And a lot of them were um, skeptical, you know, because they have seen the same harmful representation and romance that I have, uh, you know, with native stories. And um, a few of them gave one one of them specifically gave me books to read and said, you know, if you're serious, read these books and come back. But she didn't know <laughs> that this is what this is my catnip, you know. So I read the books that she gave me and was like, hey, I'm back. She's like, you read them? I'm like, oh, yeah, let's talk, <laughs> you know. And um, out of those conversations, one of the things that was cons that consistently arose was the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women, which was something I hadn't heard very much about at all. Um, but every conversation had it as a part of it because it's 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 an epidemic. It's something that is, you know, the only black when black women go missing, you know, we don't get a lot of news coverage and. Indigenous women, the rate of missing and murdered Indigenous women is actually higher than for Black women. And I, it's it's mind boggling when you start to dig into it. And it's complicated. The reasons why are complicated. But um, so I, I wanted to unpack a lot of that in the context of an epic love story, you know. Yes. And so that's what I love. And I think a lot of readers really enjoy about your books is that they have love stories. There is romance, but there is a lot more to the books than just the love story. Yeah. So when you're writing the books, you've done all of this research, you've done interviews and so on. How do you then weave all of those issues that you do want to tackle into the love story? Or do you weave the love story in after like, which comes first? They kind of come simultaneously in the sense that people are like, okay, so you build these characters. And I'm like, no, I don't really build my characters until after the research, mm -hmm. um, especially someone like Lennox, because so much of her character is how connected she is to her community and her passion for her community. And so the more I could understand her community, her roots, and what was shaping it, what would shape and form her, the more clear her character became for me. And usually I am forming the character of the woman first. If it's MF, I'm um, forming the character of the woman first. And then I'm like, and who's the perfect guy for her? You know, I usually build a guy after I know what she needs in a partner. Um, and so that's what I did with Linux, you know, and also just 
the juxtaposition of their places in the world, you know, because she's obviously in a marginalized community um, and she's in a place of defense against her, you know, basically what his family is doing. Um, But I had to be really, really careful that Maxim is connected to privilege, but it's also something that he believes, I can't separate myself from privilege, but I'm going to leverage it to help people who don't have it. Um, And he's very clear that, you know, I was like, how can I make him as antithetical to what his father is doing as possible? And so his father is obviously into oil and he is like, no, like we need to be green. We, I'm concerned about climate change. Like he gets his PhD in climate science. He is so obviously distancing himself from that legacy. Um, and he does become a billionaire. And, you know, I know we're like, eat the rich, <laughs> you know? So he, I was, and there's nothing wrong with billionaire romance. Like there's nothing wrong with billionaire romance, but I wanted my billionaire to sign the giving pledge, which is, which says that you will donate over the course of your lifetime, half of your wealth to, you know, you know, to philanthropic causes. Like there was just so many things that I wanted to kind of turn on their head in this, um, in this story, like what you think of as a, you know, a billionaire romance. I kind of wanted to turn it and refocus it and reshift it and shift it a little bit. Um, and so I think that, and I think that makes it interesting. I think the locations make it inter- interesting, Amsterdam and Antarctica and South America. And, you know, of course, DC, because we've got politics. Uh, it's just this really like sweeping kind of um, story and that people are often like, why did you have to make it two books? And I'm like, well, it would have been like literally a, a 800 page romance novel if I hadn't. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. How would you characterize then these stories? They're very emotional. They have romance, but they also make you think, um, would you call them women's fiction or contemporary romance or sort of all of the above? Yeah, when people say, is it contemporary romance? Is it women's fiction? I just say yes, <laughs> you know, um, because I've heard people describe it as literary romance. I've heard people describe it as romantic women's fiction. You know, it is all those things. Um, it Romance plus, you know, one of the most common comments that I see readers make is that it's quote unquote, not just romance. And I, I'm fine with just romance. You know, I grew up on romance. I love romance, but I do recognize what they mean in that um, a lot of times the stories that they're seeing in romance are different than what these things are, you know, built from a very specific perspective with uh, this level of research, this level of kind of like tackling issues. Um, And everything I write doesn't do that, but a lot of it does. Um, And I think it goes back to kind of the conviction that is the bedrock of everything I write. So I would call it probably romantic women's fiction, literary romance, you know, whatever that is, that kind of combines those elements of women's fiction, which is kind of a story that centers a woman's journey, but then also romance because there's a guaranteed happily ever after. Um, So I think it's all of those things. I love that. And I love the way in which you said in your writing process that you focus on the woman first when that's applicable for the character and that they're really at the center of these stories. And then you sort of craft what man they would need or who would be best for them after that. Right. 
Right. Especially in a story like Longshot, um, you know, Iris, even in, in the inside that series, the heroes, those three books, the heroes are so different from each other. You know, like when you're looking at Longshot, Iris has a harrowing journey. Um, and then there's a space where there's like a year in the book where she is not with him, you know, and she's just focused on healing herself you know, and really just focusing on re kind of reclaiming her life and rebuilding herself. And August is incredibly patient. You know, he's incredibly patient and he's incredibly understanding, he's incredibly compassionate. And then when you get to block shot, you know, Jared, who's a sports agent, is a bulldozer. You know, he's a Mack truck. And he, if I were to, I would never pair someone like him with someone like Iris, but someone like uh, Banner, who's his heroine, she is like an alpha female and she needs like that push and that pull. And they really like, they bump heads and it creates this chemistry. They're a lot alike, but they're also very different. He calls her his equinox, you know? Um, and so, and then when you get to Hookshot, again, someone who, a, a survivor of a different kind of um, hurt in the heroine, but very, very strong, you know? And a hero who has his own thing Things, but is incredibly patient and incredibly kind and incredibly compassionate, you know? And so I do, I build the woman first because I, for me, romance, and I know we always talk about our book boyfriends, our book husbands, you know, but for me, romance is a genre that is primarily run by women, written by women, and it, it depicts, it is the only genre that centers our pleasure and centers our agency and is concerned about our joy. Um, so yeah, I build the woman first generally. And then I find out what, who is her partner, you know, who is going to be strong enough for her, who's going to be kind enough for her, who's going to be patient enough for her. Um, and in some cases, who's going to be secure enough. You know, when you look at a, a character like Kimba in Queen Move, which is book three of this story, she's like on CNN, you know, and she's like, out representing presidential candidates and electing presidents and she's and her her partner is an educator and he's in the background you know and he's not a weak kind of guy but it takes a certain strength to say okay my woman is like in the spotlight she's electing president she's doing amazing things i'm secure enough to be her partner you know so it's like what does that woman need yes and i really enjoy your approach i mean both of the men in these uh, books, in The Kingmaker and in Longshot, have an enormous amount of wealth um, yeah. that they've certainly worked hard to have. But I love that they have that and they don't use it in a way that I feel like we see as much in sort of that billionaire romance trope. They really sort of use that in a way that I enjoyed where it was, um, it sort of just takes away that barrier where, you know, money is not the issue and they can provide certain things without too much struggle. And I loved in Longshot the way that August can very easily see how his money could be used to manipulate Iris, but he absolutely is steadfast that that is not what it is for. I really enjoyed August. He was very swoony from the get-go <laughs> and then just throughout the entire story. 
I was just sitting there like pumping my fist, rooting for him. Like, (laughs) yes, you are so great. Yes. Yes. And he was very specifically crafted. You know, I feel like that whole story, I wrote that story over the course of like, I don't know, two and a half years um, and took a lot of care with it because I understood it was going to be a difficult story, which it is. Um, and I just wanted to be really, really careful about it. And I'm not, there are some people who can't finish long shot, you know, and I, I'm always like, if you can't finish long shot, block shot and hook shot, you can read them. I wrote it so that you could read it without it. But for people who, who can, I find that it's usually a very impactful story. Um, but I never want someone to read something that's going to be triggering for them or uh, set them back in some way. I want us, I want it to be a story that encourages and, um, urges our hearts to hope, you know? And um, I think that's, that's the experience that I want people to have when they read Longshot. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, But this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Yes. And so for readers who are looking to just start your books, is there one that you would suggest they begin with? And for readers, you do have more a wonderful series than just these two, but I'm curious if there's one you would recommend for a first-time reader. You know, for a first-time reader, a lot of times uh, I will recognize something that's a sta- I will uh, recommend something that's a standalone uh, because some people are like, I just want to kind of taste, I want to kind of sample something. And a lot of my books are locked, are interconnected series or something like The Kingmaker, which I love, which is a duet, meaning, you know, book one's a cliffhanger, which some people don't realize that. And then they're cursing my name in the DMs and messages and emails. Um, and then you go into book two, which is The Rebel King. And I, I think that is, it's one of the, my favorite stories I've ever written is that duet. Um, a lot of times I'll tell people to start with the, with something like Before I Let Go, um, which is a standalone. Um, and it's a divorced couple who's co-parenting. And it's actually the first book I ever wrote. Uh, it is, uh, it wasn't the first book I published but it was the first book I wrote like 15 years ago. And my husband encouraged me to revisit it. And that's when I actually published it uh, last year. That's a good one to start with or real real is another standalone that um, 
Uh, I, I love, I'm an audiophile. Like that's, that's how I read 99% of my books is through audio and real. I'm really, really proud of it. Um, it made history as the first audiobook in romance to ever win um, the audio award written by a black author, also black narrators, the first mm-hmm. in that category. So I'm very proud of that audio book. So if you're an audio person, real has music and, you know, uh, uh, three narrators and it's like a full audio experience. So, yeah, I have like 10 directions. I want to go now, given that answer, (laughs) there's so many things. Uh, well, I'll stick to the order, but, um, that gave (laughs) me like wherever you want to (laughs) go. Well, so yes, your, um, most recently published book was before I let go. And that was published in 2022 by Hachette. And I am shocked to know that that was the first book you wrote. It was. Yeah. And it's, it's an, there, there was an iteration of it. You know, the first book I wrote was 15 years ago. It was before I let go. It's not the first book I published because I just thought it was practice. I didn't think it was very good. And I just kind of shoved it to the side. And my husband, my agent had come to me and said, Hey, you know, what are we going to do next? And like I said, I'm usually like something has happened to the news, something's going on in the world. And that I'm not one of these people who has like 50 stories in my head at once. Like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to write? It's always I'm seeing something and it lands in my heart. And I'm like, I want to talk about that. And I didn't have anything that was like that at the time. So I wasn't sure what I wanted to write. And my husband goes, what about that divorce book? And I was like, from like 15 years ago, that book, he goes, I said, it's just, it's crap. He was like, no, it's good. Mm-hmm. And um, I pulled it out and it's very different. Like the core of it's the same. It's the divorced couple. They have two kids. They own a restaurant in Atlanta, but the friendship, the core friendship of those three friends, because it's actually a series with three different, of three different women's books mm-hmm. um, that wasn't there. There's a lot of on-page therapy also was not there. And I, I, I always joke that the first version of this book, it's even a different title, different character names. It was in third person. It's now in first. So there's a lot that I reconstructed, but I always joke that the first iteration of this book had all the hurt and none of the healing. It didn't have the therapy. And I now have 15 years of being a wife, being a mom, being a special needs mom. And there's a lot of mental health rep in the book, having navigated depression, having gotten on antidepressants myself, like my own mental health journey. Um, I have the benefit of all of that, that I got to bring to the book when it was finally time for me to write it. I always say the book was waiting for me to grow up. Yeah. And that's so wonderful though, that you were able to then revisit it with all of that experience and you could, you know, pour that into the book so that others could see, you know, examples of, of ways to sort of work through these things uh, where they're able to. That book has since been picked up by Peacock and is in development for an adaptation. How has that experience been? It's been... (laughs) surreal. Um, when my, my agent, my film agent, film and television agent, I'll never forget. I was on the way to get my nails done (laughs) and I'm in the park and I, I see her name come up on my, you know, my phone. And this was before the book had even come out. And she was like, Kennedy. And I was like, yes. She said, Kennedy. She goes, this book, 
I'm obsessed with this book. And she was like, I'm so obsessed with this book. I've like passed it around the agency. I'm with CAA. She's like, I've passed it around the agency. Everybody's excited about it. We're going to start sending it out. And that, you know, I was new to that a little bit. And we had so much interest for it. We went to auction, which was a whole other experience. And Universal um, is actually the company that I ended up going with. Universal owns Peacock. And they kind of fast-tracked it because usually when something is optioned, it's optioned, but it's not in development. You know, like you have to find where it's going to, who's going to make it and what's, you know, we had all of that because John Legend, who I, I'm, my mind is blown. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? Um, John Legend, um, Malcolm D. Lee, who is the genius behind the Best Man movie franchise, um, also was the director for Girls Trip. Like he's just a uh, story director. And Deborah Martin Chase, who is a legend, like an icon. She gave us Princess Diaries. She's the producer behind, you know, um, uh, so she introduced us to um, Anne Hathaway, to Blake Lively in uh, Sister of the Traveling Pants. Like she's, you know, she's been behind some of those like iconic kind of movies and now she's into Broadway and just won her second Tony Award for um Top Dog Underdog. So it's like to have these three producers around this content is kind of incredible. And um it's going to be on Peacock. I will say the writer strike, you know, obviously writers, WGA and SAG are both striking and that slows things down, but we are still having great conversations, all the conversations that we can have um, until writers have a livable wage. And I, I stand with writers. I am a writer. I stand with writers. Absolutely. It's so important. And as someone that like, what an incredible experience. And you've had quite a few incredible experiences in recent <laughs> years. So you mentioned like you've been the first to win major awards in certain categories, long shot you won in 2019 a Rita Award and you were the first Black author to do so. How did that feel to win and, and sort of go through that experience? You know, I think um, it was it was amazing. Like I always say, I I was first, but there were there was a, another Black author who won that night. There was a Southeast Asian author who won that night. Like there was so much <laughs> history that was made that night. And I think we all felt like, really, you know, it was like a very special night for, for all of us. Um, and I think it gave us a real sense of like hope and possibility. I don't want to get into everything that happened, you know, with RWA after that, but I think a lot of that hope was kind of like, okay, we feel like maybe there's a sea change happening. And then everything that happened with, um, the RWA after that, it, it kind of overshadowed it a little bit. Um, for me, I think, the winning the Rita was a fantastic individual experience. Um, it brought my books a lot of attention that I I think it was pretty pivotal for my career. Um, it didn't have, I think those historic wins that night didn't have the effect we hoped, I think, on romance at large because of so many things that happened after that. Um, but for my individual career, it was really um, transformative. It gave my, a lot of people who had no idea who I was, I think I, it kind of put my work on their radar in a different way. Um, and it, it def, long shot has been such a pivotal book in my career. It changed my career. It changed my life. Um, and so the Rita was a big part of that. Yeah, it's certainly a memorable experience. And while it is absolutely the 
coolest thing that you were the first <laughs> in many categories. You yeah. absolutely don't want to be the the only. No. So we <laughs> want to have, you know, that work additionally done in publishing and in these industries where it's so cool that you are the first, but we want to keep seeing that. Right. And I mean, I'm always really careful to say, because people always like, oh, you're the first to do this. You're the first to do that. And for me, I... I don't denigrate my work because I work hard, <laughs> you know, and I, I recognize like the value of what I do. Um, but at the same time, I don't think I'm like a snowflake, you know, like you can't tell me I, it is, it is, it says more about the system being what it is than it says about me being so great, <laughs> you know, that I'm the first to do these things. Like, okay, I hope I am great, but you can't tell me that there weren't black authors before me who should have won that. You can't tell me that a Beverly Jenkins or, you know, whomever, you know, that those authors weren't deserving because I know they were. So I always, the caveat for me when those things happen for me, and I'm always really honored when they do, is that it's often when it's been 30, I think it was like 37 years for the Rita. Um, And I think it was like, I don't know, 20 years or something since the beginning of the Audis for the Audi. Um, I always say it's more about systems than it is about like me as an individual. It's about systems and barriers. Um, and I'm always grateful that somehow I like busted through that ceiling, but it's like, why is the ceiling there? Why am I the only, or why am I the first in all these years? I'm always examining, asking people to examine it systemically, not just say, oh, she's great. (laughs) You know? Yeah. That's such a good point though, that there are larger conversations to be had around all of those awards as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so to bring it uh, back to Lennox and Iris uh, quickly, both are very determined and strong women, both know what they want to do, like from a young age. Uh, Lennox has a more straightforward career path, I would say, than Iris. Her dreams are sort of put on pause while she goes through a some life event. And so I'm wondering what you would say to young women or to young mothers who are trying to find their way in the world, if you would have any advice for them. Yeah, just... It sounds so cliche, but like, hold on to your dreams. (laughs) That sounds like such pat advice. But what I mean by that is I didn't sign my first book deal until I was 40 years old. You know, like I had, I had run a foundation for families with children with autism. I had, you know, been uh, doing writing for nonprofit organizations, freelancing for magazines. Like I had a whole career before this you know, before what's happening for me, but there was something kind of burning in my heart where I knew that I wanted to tell stories. I wasn't sure what form it would take. Um, And we had, there are so, and I I think that my moms, my special needs moms out there can relate. Um, There are so, I am, the greatest privilege of my life has been raising my son, (laughs) you know, like that's the greatest privilege of my life. It's also in a lot of ways, the biggest challenge, but there are so many times when I said, okay, I'm going to have to not do this right now because I need to focus on this for my family. Okay. I'm going to have to set this aside right now because I have to put this first, or I have to put my money here. I have to put my time here. I have to put my attention here. Um, and it is a delay, you know, it, it can delay our dreams, but I, I would just encourage especially single moms, moms, you know, who are like, 
my family is taking up so much right now. It's hard for me to focus on my dreams. Create space and create time for yourself. Even if it's less than you thought you would be able to give it, you know, even if it's less than you wanted to be giving it at that stage of your life, create time and create space for your dreams. I was, I was working a full-time job. I was running a found, I was working a full-time job and running my autism foundation. And I was getting up at five o'clock in the morning every day to write, you know, and as soon as my husband and my son were asleep, I would write, you know, for hours after they were asleep and then get back up in the morning and do it. I'm not saying that's what everybody has to do, but I think what's transferable is figure out how you can create time and space for your dreams and don't let as much as you can, don't allow the delays and the hiccups, you know, that happen in your life to steal the hope of being and doing what you always thought you could, Um, you know, don't let go of your potential. Um, if I could encourage women to do that. That's so great. As I'm sitting here, the listeners can't see I'm nodding my head <laughs> because it's so true. I'm a, I sing new ish mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, my son is almost four years old, but it has been such a challenge to carve out time for myself yes. in many ways. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is, is not even allowing myself to carve out that time. It's not necessarily you know, because of other things like my job or, you know, other duties, it's, it's not allowing myself to have that space as an individual um, because I'm a mom. And so sort of everything you're saying is just ringing true because you really do need to, as much as you are able, give yourself that permission to, to hold on to your dreams and to have that time to do the things that you enjoy. Right, right. And I, it's so funny that we're talking about this because the next book that I'm like, the next book that I'm releasing that's new content is the next book in the Skyland series. Um, if anyone read Before I Let Go, the three friends are Yasmin, and her book was Before I Let Go, and Soledad and Hendrix. And Soledad's book is coming out in March. And that's such a huge, she's like someone who, um, she's a stay at home mom you know, and she believes that her home is like her kingdom. And all she wants to do is like pour everything into these three amazing daughters and send them out into the world to like change it and be the best versions of themselves they can. And it's so easy for our identities to be swallowed, you know, by all of our responsibilities and commitments. And a lot of that is about her reclaiming her own space, which is, I think what we as women often have to do, you know, is reclaim, reclaim our dreams, reclaim our space, reclaim our energy. Um, ourselves. And so I think that just rings with what you're saying. That does bring me to one of my next questions is what can we look forward to next? I know we're getting new covers of the hoop series in August, September, and October. Um, You said that the next book in the Skyland series comes out early 2024, but what are you working on now that you can talk about? Um, I am... I I'm doing research for book three of the Skyland series um because I Soledad's book is already it doesn't it comes out in March of 2024 but I've turned it in and we're working on the cover now which is fun <laughs> um and so I'm doing kind of some of the groundwork and research for Hendrix's book which is the third book in that series and then um you know just 
really working on promoting a lot of promoting for the hoop series. Um, especially I guess, because long shot is the first book I'm doing a lot of travel, you know, I'm traveling a lot, kind of like semi tour, <laughs> you know, so I'm not writing as much right now because I am on the road so much. Um, I have so much travel ahead and behind, like it feel, like over the last two months, I've been somewhere almost every week. And so I have a month here at home before I go back on the road in August. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of like enjoying my family and doing some groundwork for Hendrix's book. That's so great. And that's my next question. We're just in sync today um, <laughs> is you've got a lot of events coming up. You've been doing a lot of events this yes. year to get the word out when we're sort of returning to form with book tours and author events in person. Is there something that you're most looking forward to in your events upcoming? You know, um, I think the next three events that I have, well, I have a few coming up for the rest. Everything I'm doing for the rest of the year is really exciting. Um, I am doing uh, an event called Behind the Pen, which is like a Black romance event, which I'm really excited about, which is in New York. That It's, I think, August 11th. That same week, I'm at The Strand in New York with some other Bloom authors, which is really exciting. I They've announced it. I've had so much going on. I haven't posted it to any of my socials or anything yet, but I'll be in the strand at the strand. And then I'll be at Steamy Lit. And I'm really, really excited about the Steamy Lit conference because um, uh, Melissa, who created Steamy Lit and the Steamy Box, her whole purpose around that is diversity and BIPOC authors and amplifying BIPOC voices. Um, and so as someone who has gone to a lot of these big uh, signings and conferences, there's always such a um, a real lack of diversity in the authors who are there. And Melissa had gone to that and she was like, this isn't great, you know? And she yeah. created the Steamy Lit Conference specifically starting with BIPOC authors. I mean, everybody's there. When you look at the list, it's Christina Lauren, it's Allie Hazelwood, it's like everybody. But it's also so much representation of Black and Brown and queer authors that we don't usually see at these other large signings. So I'm particularly excited about being a part of an event that's so... Um, in intentionally centers BIPOC authors because we don't see it enough. So, and that's in Anaheim. That's in Anaheim. Oh, yeah. Uh, that sounds like an incredible event. I can't wait. It's, I can't wait. <laughs> it's the first one, but she's already got the next two, the next two years booked. Oh, I'm like, okay, how do I get to those in yes. the future? That yes. sounds fantastic. Absolutely. What is your favorite part of interacting with your readers at these kinds of events? Hearing for, hearing how the books impacted them, I think um, so many of them cry, <laughs> you know, they cry. Um, I think especially with uh, with uh, with different books, sometimes it's long shot, you know, the survivors who come through. That's really wrenching. And we both end up crying um, with something like Before I Let Go. It's therapy. Usually, you know, like I'm now in therapy because I read Before I Let Go where we're in marriage counseling after I read Before I Let Go. I write the thing I always tell people is that you have different metrics for success. My primary metric for success is impact. Sales, you want that. Listing, you, you want all of those things. But for me, how a story craters in a reader's heart 
and resonates for them and how it leaves a lasting impact on their lives. That is my greatest metric for success. And the thing I love most about these in-person events and seeing readers and signing their books and hugging them and crying with them is actually getting to see that, you know, actually getting to see the effect that all of this work, all of this research, all of these interviews, like all this blood, sweat and tears, it's worth it. You know, when you see how it is, how it has affected people. I love that. And it's so true. I mean, from the reader's perspective, I mean, and you're a reader as well. Like when you feel these emotions, you get so attached to these characters. I know from that perspective, it is so cool to get to meet the authors that write these books and these characters and just, you know, have this community to talk about these things. It's, I think the book community is one of the best ones. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Book people are the best people. (laughs) They really are. And so for our listeners, where can they find you online and stay up to date with all of these things that are going on with you? Um, I, I, I'm on my website, obviously, kennedyryanwrites.com, but I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. I'm now on threads. (laughs) I'm on uh, TikTok and all of those places have my link tree, you know, and so my link tree will have all of my events. It'll have all of my signings. It'll have everything that's coming up, my newest releases. So I always tell people to check like check like the link tree on Instagram, on Twitter, on threads, on TikTok, and it'll give them everything they need. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kennedy, for chatting with me today. This was an absolute delight. And I hope that all of our listeners go out and find all of these wonderful books. The Kingmaker is out now and Longshot, the first of the Hoops series will be out on August 8th. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. And the Rebel King is out too. Yes. I, sometimes I'll get people who somehow pick up the Rebel King before they pick up the Kingmaker. And I'm like, what? The Kingmaker and the Rebel King together. Oh, that might be disastrous if they pick that one up (laughs) first. (laughs) Yes, you can't start in the middle. So, but yes, those are both out and long shots coming August 8th. I'm really, really excited. Thanks for having me today. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer and Joe Skelly and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.